It's Thursday, December 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. First there were greenies in baseball, then there were steroids. But now, Adderall seems to be the performance-enhancing drug of choice. The pills are easy to get, hard to test for, and provide that boost of focus and energy that is needed to play the game. Kendall Baker, sports editor at Axios, joins us for the big problem. While many believe taking Adderall is cheating, some players need it for legitimate reasons. So what should be done? Next, while the impeachment inquiry is still underway and 2020 Democratic candidates are fighting for the nomination, what is the Trump campaign doing to fight back against anti-Trump animus? Trotting out Mike Pence. Trump can handle the big rallies and Pence will be out making the case for another term with seniors, suburban women, and swing state voters. Gabby Orr, White House reporter at Politico, joins us for more. Finally, now that many people have cut the cord and are spending more time with streaming platforms, you have to be careful about all that binge watching. Some internet providers put a data cap on what you consume and the autoplay feature could be a major culprit. Jefferson Graham, host of the Talking Tech podcast, joins us for why too much binging could cost you more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Steroids is so black and white. The visuals of steroids are so aggressive, you know, sticking a needle in your butt, things like that, where this is somebody, sister has Adderall and they try it and they feel like they're more focused and they take that and they do well hitting a baseball. Joining us now is Kendall Baker, sports editor at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Kendall. Thanks for having me. In his latest piece for The Athletic, former Major League Baseball player Lars Anderson, he played for the Red Sox for a few years was talking about his experience using Adderall as a performance-enhancing drug while he was playing in Japan and how much it improved his on-field performance. What a lot of people might not realize is that this is not really a small-time thing. A lot of baseball players are using this. I think somebody called Adderall the 21st century greenie. Greenies were these kind of amphetamines that baseball players were taking way back in the day. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll get into what Lars Anderson was saying about his experience with Adderall. Amphetamines used to be very popular in baseball. In fact, they've kind of always been. And people often obviously link most of baseball's troubles with the steroid era. But this was actually kind of the precursor to that. I mean, you think about it just kind of generally and not getting into specifics. Baseball is a very, you know, monotonous sport. It's a grind of a season. And essentially, players just need focus, whether it's drinking a Red Bull, you know, multiply that by 100. And that's what you're getting with some of these drugs. And so that's really what this is all about. It's a sport that requires a lot of attention, a lot of just staring at pitchers at balls. And so like players are going to do what they think is going to give them the advantage. The interesting thing about Adderall now entering the conversation is that Adderall is actually a medication that a lot of players do legitimately need, just like people in the general population. And so that's what makes this debate kind of interesting is that it's not as black and white as players shouldn't be taking that. Of course, like people do need this drug. So it's kind of about how does baseball monitor this? And there's a lot to discuss for sure. Anderson said that when he was taking it, he had boundless amounts of easily controlled energy. So obviously it's the focus that you were just talking about. He went on to say, you know, he was just utterly in the moment with a clear mission, win this pitch, the next one, the next one, the next one. And it just helped him focus so much. And as you were talking about this, a lot of focus required in the game, but there's a lot of travel time. There's a lot of stress on the body, fatigue that can set in. And something like this is really a game changer for them. It can really give them a leg up. And that's where the PED part comes into the equation, right? Again, going back to kind of comparing this to, let's say, steroids, I think steroids, even the word of it now, people immediately cringe, and that's kind of black and white in people's minds. The visual of that 
you know, as a player with huge muscles that's able to hit these home runs. Like, you clearly don't want that in the game, whereas it's kind of harder to envision a player who has enhanced focus or, you know, feels like they can see the ball better. Like, you don't see that on the screen. But if that's what's happening and players don't actually have prescriptions to have that drug, then by most definitions, performance enhancing. And so that's what I personally think is so interesting about this is that this has been going on. And while Major League Baseball does test for it, it's hard to test for. And so we really have no idea, like, how prevalent this is. I do remember there's one famous example in the last few years where the Orioles first baseman Chris Davis had an Adderall prescription, I believe it was in 2013, and he hit 53 home runs, had one of the best years in recent memory. The following year, didn't get his Adderall prescription renewed and hit like 24 home runs. Wow. So, you know, obviously that's one example and you don't want to draw too many conclusions and try and fit a narrative into there, but that is interesting. And I think Chris has gone on to get a different prescription, which is to Vyvanse, which is a similar medication. And I mean, he's literally been one of the worst hitters in baseball history. Again, not trying to draw too many conclusions, but it is interesting, particularly when you look at a player like him. You talked about the testing and it's hard to test for because the Adderall really doesn't stay in a person's body for too long at all. In urine, it's there for four days. But in blood, it's just 46 hours. So of all the drugs that Major League Baseball and all the professional sports leagues test for, like that's extremely small amount of time. And, you know, to get a prescription is fairly easy. You know, you go to a doctor and they're going to ask you the questions. If you answer in the affirmative to everything, you'll probably get one. Or you can get it through, quote unquote, a friend somewhere else. So it's fairly easy to get the pills. What else did Anderson say in his piece regarding all of this? I mean, what was his big takeaway? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing for baseball? You know, I think his takeaway was kind of in the middle, right, where kind of what I was alluding to, where this is a much more nuanced conversation than steroids are bad, gets steroids out of baseball. He had one other kind of interesting point in there where he talked to a player who does have a prescription who does need Adderall, but he actually made the point that in order for him to have an Adderall prescription, the league wants to know that you're actually taking that drug for medical purposes. So he was required to actually take Adderall every day. And he actually argued that that was like bad. Like for some people, maybe if you wake up, you take your Adderall go about your day. For others, it's potentially if you have a prescription and you're using it for specific tasks or things like that. When he was required to take it every day, he actually had sleep issues, insomnia, all these things. And so that was just another part of this debate that's on the kind of the complete opposite side about how players who do have prescriptions have to take it every day. Has the league taken any specific stance on Adderall use? I know they probably test for it here and there, but with it being out of your system so quickly, I mean, it's hard to detect. Has MLB really done anything to curb use or any action on this at all? Not to my knowledge. I mean, they very well may have come out with statements in past years. I'm not entirely sure. I do know that this has been kind of one of those not talked about issues for a while. And I think maybe that means it's not a big issue. Maybe that means, again, going back to my point, people aren't even aware. I mean, it's not like one of those drugs where one of your teammates could be taking it, you'd be very aware of that. So again, who knows? Drawing the comparison to steroids again, steroids is so black and white. The visuals of steroids are so aggressive, you know, sticking a needle in your butt, things like that, where this is somebody, sister has Adderall and they try it and they feel like they're more focused and they take that and they do well hitting a baseball. Now all of a sudden it's it's a huge thing. So very interesting. We'll see if anything comes to this piece, particularly with a former player having penned it. Kendall Baker, sports editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We rolled back red tape at a historic level. We unleashed American energy, fought for free and fair trade, and America's economy is booming. 
Joining us now is Gabby Orr, White House reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Gabby. Thanks for having me. We've been talking a lot about the impeachment inquiry. We've been talking a lot about 2020 Democrats. So we wanted to take a moment to check in on the Trump campaign strategy for 2020. Gabby, you wrote something up for Politico talking about how Vice President Mike Pence is going to feature into the 2020 campaign season. And basically what they're going to be doing is kind of this good cop, bad cop thing where Vice President Mike Pence is going to run to fill in all the gaps that the president maybe, you know, he's causing problems with a scandal here and there. And really, people think he is very effective on this. They basically think that Vice President Mike Pence delivering remarks in a more intimate setting to fewer people is equal to the president speaking at these huge mega rallies that he's doing. That's just how effective he is. Gabby, tell us a little bit more about how Vice President Mike Pence will feature into the campaign. To sum it up, I mean, it's definitely similar to the dynamic we saw in 2016, which is this good cop, bad cop routine that Trump and Pence tend to play. On the one hand, President Trump has this bombastic personality. He says whatever is on his mind without really thinking about the consequences beforehand. He will go on attack against political opponents. And then you have Mike Pence, who is definitely more measured, more even keeled. He's soft spoken. He is deliberate in the words that he chooses in interviews and, and when he's out on the stump. And so it's a totally different brand of personality on either side. And the Trump campaign wants to basically use that to their advantage. The president is not doing so well right now with women voters, with suburban residents, and even with independents and the exact demographics that he's going to need to make inroads with if he wants to win re-election. So that's where Mike Pence fits in. He's somebody who has less of a bombastic personality who can reassure and reinforce, which is the phrase that was just repeatedly used to me when I was talking to people involved with the campaign. And the vice president has largely remained out of the picture on many of the president's scandals. Obviously, he's kind of got wrapped up into the Ukraine thing a little bit, but still really nothing there. So he has this kind of legitimacy to him that the president might be lacking on certain subjects. In your article, you wrote up that people close to Pence are using phrases like polite pressure and micro-targeting. What do those terms mean? No, the polite pressure phrase just so accurately captures exactly what type of role Mike Pence will play in 2020. And that is to go out there and talk to prospective Trump voters, people who might like what the president has done for them over the last three and a half years, but don't like his personality and to essentially put pressure on them gently and say, look, if you feel like your pockets have been lined more, if the kitchen table issues have worked well under this administration for you, then you should consider voting for the president, even if you don't like his tweets, even if you don't think he's a man of character, put all of that aside and feel as though you can be reassured knowing that I'm in the White House well. And so that's kind of the message that we can expect to hear from Mike Pence over the next few months. And then on top of that, I mean, just the setting for Mike Pence on the campaign trail will be totally different from what you see with President Trump. President Trump is obviously known to drop into these metropolitan areas and different pockets of states and hold these mega rallies that can attract 10,000 people overnight. And Mike Pence will do far more of the retail politicking, the baby kissing, the handshaking. I mean, you name it. He will look right. like a much more traditional candidate. I mean, it's a perfect tag team. They're dividing and conquering on that front. What are some of the states or areas that are going to be getting some of this love from the vice president? His team on the campaign has broken his travel schedule into three different tiers. On the one hand, they think that he'll have a better opportunity to connect with voters in the Rust Belt states that Trump narrowly won in 2016. 
and where he is really vulnerable right now with suburban women. So expect to see him in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And then you have your second and third tier states. These are states that the president is either at risk of losing, even though he carried them in 2016, or states where his campaign sees an opening to potentially flip them in his favor in 2020. And so that includes Arizona, Georgia, Texas, as some of the states that he could potentially lose in 2020, and then New Mexico and Minnesota as states that he might be able to pick up in 2020. The vice president has been a steadfast supporter of the president, sticking up for him really just about everywhere. And reports are saying also that the president is all in on Vice President Mike Pence. Also, I guess there was some talk a little bit that he might dump Pence and bring Nikki Haley in to run for the second term, things like that. But that really doesn't seem to be the case. Well, it wasn't until last week that the president finally quashed those rumors, which had been circulating for quite a while. He had been making phone calls to friends in the evenings, asking them what they thought about Mike Pence. And there had been some discussion inside the White House about what it would look like to replace Pence on the ticket with somebody who could appeal more to suburban women and and other types of voters. And Nikki Haley's name was, of course, mentioned. But last week, the president did an interview with Fox News in which he said, you know, I like Mike Pence. I think he's a great guy. I think he's done great things for our administration and he fully intends to keep him on. It's always worth noting, though, that this is a president who makes decisions on a whim (laughs) and even can uh, surprise his own advisors sometimes. So I think Pence's team feels safe, but that doesn't mean that they aren't constantly on their toes as well. Gabby Orr, White House reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, the same companies that have been giving us cable are now our Internet provider, and they've concocted a plan, some of them anyway, that you have an X amount of space that you can use each month. Like the wireless companies, you can only talk so long. And if you go over it, you owe them money. Joining us now is Jefferson Graham, columnist at USA Today and host of the Talking Tech podcast. Thanks for joining us, Jefferson. Happy to be here. We're going to be talking about... All these streaming services are coming on board. People are going crazy for Disney Plus and Baby Yoda. People have seen the memes all over the place. But one thing you have to be careful for is that there could be some hidden fees that you might not be aware of. And this is coming from your internet provider, not necessarily these streaming platforms. But if you have autoplay enabled, either like on Netflix, Amazon Prime, even the Disney Plus stuff, you could be racking up a lot of extra fees. Jefferson, tell us a little bit about this. We're accustomed to watching TV for hours and hours and hours and not having any issue. Nobody ever complained. We pay your monthly cable bill and that's it. Now, the same companies that have been giving us cable are now our internet provider, and they've concocted a plan, some of them anyway, that you have an X amount of space that you can use each month. Like the wireless companies, you can only talk so long. And if you go over it, you owe them money. The two worst offenders here are Comcast and Cox. Talked to a guy who went crazy watching so much Disney Plus that he got a note at the end of the month. You have exceeded your amount. You're going to have overages. I kind of like to go to bed with something in the background, and I do this specifically. So when I saw this article right away, I freaked out and I thought, oh, my God, if I'm going to be subject to some of this. So tell us kind of what some of these data caps are that these Internet providers are imposing on people. Well, the data cap is one terabyte and no human being has any idea 
what that really means. I think I figured out it would be about 10 hours a day of viewing, but I don't think that's actually true because I think it's 10 hours at a lower speed. What happens when you start watching 4K programming? Yeah. So Michael Markman, this guy in, Se- in the Seattle area who I interviewed, he went and checked his bills and he was averaging about 50% of his data cap every month. And then he bought a new 4K TV, a big screen 4K TV and started watching more. And all of a sudden he went from 50% to 100% because the 4K takes up so much more data. Now, let me ask you, who is your internet provider? I go through DirecTV. I don't know if they have data caps, though DirecTV is AT&T, and they definitely have data caps. So I would be careful about that. And I'd also turn autoplay off because what happens is you go to bed, you've watched that last episode of The Crown, and then you turn off the TV. But in fact, Netflix then runs shows endlessly for eight to 10 hours, and you're paying for that. So you either want to close the app altogether or quit out of autoplay, which you could do by going into settings. You said Cox Cable and Comcast are some of the worst offenders with this. Cox Cable has a breakdown on one of their websites talking about how much a terabyte of data is worth. And, you know, they have a bunch of stuff, 142 hour HD movies that you could watch. 100 half-hour standard definition TV shows, a bunch of stuff. I listened to 7,500 songs that are four minutes long each. I love these very specific breakdowns. But you're right. We just went through Black Friday, Cyber Monday, where people are buying these higher quality TVs, 4K, 8K, things like that. And the first thing you want to do is test those things out. So you do have to be careful with the data right there. Who are some of the companies that are not doing these data caps? Verizon does not have a data cap and Spectrum, which is also known as Charter, does not have a data cap. In the Western region where I am, Frontier does not have a data cap. But that's for now. Cable TV subscribers were paying their monthly fee and all of a sudden they got hit with this 10 to $12 broadcast fee. That was just made up out of thin air. We shouldn't have to pay, but we're paying because they're just always looking for new ways to charge us for more things. And this is a way for them to charge you more money for what you're doing. You had the line in the article, perfect. Welcome to the world of cutting the cord from cable and spending more time with streaming. These companies do need to look for extra revenue streams and how to handle this with more people are using data and bandwidth and things like that. As you said, it could be a lot more companies doing this. It just makes sense in a way. Many of us live in an area where it's a monopoly. In LA where I am, I have two choices. I have Frontier or Spectrum, period, which is better than most who have no alternatives. I don't know about you if you have another alternative, but usually if there's competition, there's no data caps. For Comcast part, they say that the average customer pays about 60 to $75 monthly for internet service. And this could be with a data cap. And if you want to go unlimited, then it charges a flat additional $50 fee. That's a lot of money now that you're just spending on internet. And we've been talking about this with all these online streaming platforms coming up. We've been talking about it, how now you're paying just as much as cable because you're getting so many other platforms. And now you got to pay for the unlimited data plan. So it, it is pretty crazy. Jefferson Graham, columnist for USA Today and host of the Talking Tech podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.